Brethren, horrifying results are taking place all over this world, as most of you know. The results of what? Frankly, the results of bad government. You hear about horrible things happening in the Congo where people are being butchered and tortured, and they're saying that rape is used as a weapon of war. Literally tens of thousands of women have been raped just to conquer, to humiliate the other tribes. The same thing in Darfur and other parts of Africa. And there's terrible suffering there. People are starving to death in Darfur and other parts of Africa. And one in one uh, area, we know that there are people, about uh, 30% of them seem to have AIDS, and that's spreading all through Africa, tremendous percentages in some of those places. We know that there are terrible, hit, uh, have been terrible governments in the past that have resulted in horrifying suffering, such as Adolf Hitler and the six million people that died because of his government. Joseph Stalin, frankly, as other historians have brought out, killed even more than Hitler, frankly. And I won't go into that, but they say many tens of millions died because of what Stalin did. And Mao Zedong and the others in, in China as they started this communist revolution. Again, millions of people were wiped out. And, of course, we've had this terrible situation with Saddam Hussein, and we went in and conquered that nation, and yet we're not really bringing peace, and people are still being butchered over there. You hear of it almost every day. And Russia, Putin right now, is beginning to assert the Russian power again. He wants to show that Russia is coming back, and he wants to get control of this special pipeline that runs right through Russia. He can literally choke off the oil, a lot of the oil that's going to Europe this coming winter, and he's going to have Europe by the throat, and that's what he wants. So a lot of things are happening, and it could lead to a new Cold War and eventually to a hot war. I think these events are going to speed up events because as the Arab nations get upset at us more and more, it's driving them together, and they're going to create what the Bible calls the king of the south. And as Putin asserts his power, what's that going to do this winter? It's going to really make the Europeans say, we have got to get together. We have really got to have a government, not just a common currency and some committees in Brussels arguing about things. We've got to have a coherent government and a real army that with power. And they're going to get it. And when you read back in Daniel, I don't have time to go on that now, but you go back into Daniel and you read about they're going to worship the god of fortresses, this coming dictator. They're going to have the most powerful army with overwhelming force that has ever been created in the history of the earth. And that's true. That's going to happen within the lifetimes of most of you. And so these horrible things are happening. Why? Because of bad government. Bad government, that's the answer. Of course, that's the cause, I should say. But, of course, what is the answer? The answer is the true gospel. What is the true gospel? The gospel of the kingdom or government of God. And we grew up in Protestant churches or Catholic churches, most of us. We did the Lord Jesus away in a manger. Silent night, holy night. And we don't have it fixed in our brain that the gospel is about government. And this world is suffering and suffering and agony because of bad government. So, brethren, we need to realize what the real gospel is and how important that is. Turn back to Daniel chapter 2, if you would, with me. Daniel chapter 2 in your Bible. Here we find a very basic prophecy that most of you are very familiar with, so I just want to hit the high spots of it. But Daniel, 
was revealed, it was revealed to Daniel, this vision that Nebuchadnezzar had. And, of course, he says in verse 36, Daniel 2:36. this is the dream. Now we will tell you the interpretation. You, O king, are a king of kings. The God of heaven has given you a kingdom, and all the peoples on earth are under you. You're the head of gold. But, verse 39, after you shall arise another kingdom. We know that was the Medo-Persian empire, inferior to yours, than a third kingdom. Of course, that was Alexander the Great and the Greco-Macedonian Empire, which is bronze, not quite as wealthy, not quite as powerful. Then another great kingdom, a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, more strong militarily, but it had a lot of mixture, different types of races and different types of ethnic groups in it and different types of religion, and they were not totally together. Much as iron breaks in pieces and shatters all these things, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush the others. Why? Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of iron and partly of potter's clay. You see, it's a mixed-up kingdom. They're not going to be totally together. They won't last very long, but they will be right there when Christ returns. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, some powerful armies and military weapons of all kinds, and yet mixed up people with different backgrounds and different ideas and so on, so the kingdom will be partly strong and partly fragile. And as you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men. They'll get different ethnic groups together and try to somehow put them together, and it won't last. They will not adhere But, verse 44, in the days of these kings of this fourth kingdom will be the great fifth kingdom. What is the fifth kingdom? The fifth government. It's the government of the Christ of the Bible. In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. That kingdom, that government will bring peace because Christ will be the head of that government, and that will be the government that will last forever. And that's the government that you and I are called to be part of. We've got to really understand that. We will be spirit beings. We won't be male or female. We won't be black or white or yellow or any other background. We'll be totally together. We will be spirit beings coming right out from God with the nature of God put in us, and we'll be able to rule in a right way. And God wants that. We can't do it properly in our human flesh, but we can grow toward that character that can be given a spirit body. So we need to understand that's the answer to this world's horrible problems. And brethren, you all know this. The problems are going to get much, much worse before they get better. Much worse. As these various European people with back, different backgrounds and different languages and everything put themselves together, it won't be perfect, but it will last for a while And they will create the greatest military establishment with all kinds of atomic weapons and chemical weapons and, of course, all kinds of things that have not yet been invented. They've talked about giant space mirrors and everything like that. And they'll probably get things like that, things that they don't even have now. They'll just destroy mankind so that there would be no flesh left alive except Christ come back. And when he comes back, we're going to be with him very, very quickly in straightening out this world. And we've got to think of it as a reality. I know some of you older brethren are weary with well-doing, and I'm not just talking to those of you here, but you brethren around the world. I understand that. 
that could happen to me. I try to pray that it doesn't, and so far it hasn't. But, you know, I used to hear Mr. Armstrong back in the early 1950s, and sometimes he would say, Brethren, this thing could all wind up in the tribulation within the next five or ten years. One time he said, it could be as long as 50 years. And after church, I went over to my uncle, Dr. C. Paul Meredith, who'd lived longer. I said, I said, doctor, I said, Uncle Paul, I said, the guy said 50 years. He said, yes, he's a wise man. <laughs> he said 50 years. And that was good because it has been over 50 years. So we can't set dates, but we do know that things are much, much closer. And there's no question about that. None of these things were happening at that time. And so we're getting very close to that time, and that's pretty obvious, I think, to those of us who understand the government of God to be established on this earth. Turn in your New Testament to Mark, if you would, brethren, Mark chapter 1, Mark, and we'll go to chapter uh, 1 and verse 14. Here is the true gospel. It's, again, something very familiar. But Mark chapter 1, and here Jesus, it talks about Christ coming. And now after John was put in prison, verse 14, Jesus came to Galilee. This was after Mark, after John was put in prison. You know, he was beheaded. Jesus at that point came to Galilee preaching what? Gospel means good news, not bad news. I know that some of you may associate it with bad news because we talk about the terrible prophecies that are going to happen and the things before that. But the gospel is the good news that after those wars, Christ will come again. And, of course, Mr. Lindley's sermon, uh, his uh, sermon, his sermon in uh, song uh, projected that. That's that very thing. We can rejoice in that fact. The gospel of the kingdom of God, the government of God, and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God, the government of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Now, this is another thing, brethren, that frankly a lot of our own brethren don't fully grasp. I think they do, and yet you don't think about it very much. Mr. Armstrong had to try to drum it into our head. The word kingdom means government. But when the King James Version was first written, what did they have? They didn't have democracies. They had a king in Britain. They had a king in France. They had a king in all these other places, if you understand what I mean with real power. The kingdom meant government. So that's what it's talking about. We often somehow, because we've heard so much about it in our Protestant Catholic background, we don't automatically say kingdom means government, but it really does. It's always talking about government, and we have to get our mind, or as we might say in the vernacular, wrap our minds around that to understand the real message of God and think about it more realistically. I know a lot of you have been in the church a long time, and you've heard, well, the kingdom of God and Christ is going to come sometime. But I'll tell you, brethren, I think we're going to the last five or ten years now for sure, before, you know, the tribulation at least. That's what I think, but I'm not setting a date. That's just my human opinion. And I think these things are speeding up in a tremendous way right now, where the end of this age with the tribulation beginning could be in the next several years. I don't mean decades, but several years. And I'll tell you, if you only have another 6 to 12 years to get ready, and some of us will die before that time, we better get real. We better get with it. And we better really prepare for the job that we're called to do. We're called to do a job and understand that calling. So let's turn now to Luke chapter 19, if you would. Luke chapter 19. And here, in verse 11, as they heard Christ, and He spoke another parable, because they thought... 
he was near Jerusalem, and they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. You see, they had the concept, as most of you know, that, that the Messiah would come back as a literal king of kings and kick out the Romans. They had an occupation army there. It's like the British occupied the eastern part of the United States, you know, so to speak, under the colonies, and we kicked them out in the sense that we declared our independence. And we're over in Iraq, and they don't like our troops. They want us out, and so on around the world. And so they had an occupation army. But this, in this case, he's talking, of course, uh, about the fact that the kingdom of God, a government, would come right then, and, and they thought that, and kicked the Romans out. And that was not true. Therefore, Christ said, and he gives this parable. It is just a parable. A certain nobleman goes off to a far country to receive a kingdom and come back. And when you read it carefully, even the Protestants understand this, it obviously is talking about Christ Himself going to heaven and coming back because it wasn't going to happen right then. And He called His ten servants and delivered to them ten minas, measures of money. And frankly, brethren, as you study this carefully, you can see that it's not talking just about money. It's talking about all the strengths and talents that God has given us. Our time, our energy, the way that we serve and help, our character, how we overcome and do God's work, yes, our money, everything we have, how much do we do with that to prepare for the kingdom of God, everything we have. So he delivered them ten minus and said, Do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation. We will not have this man reign over us. And so it was when he returned, when Christ comes back, having received the kingdom, he commanded his servants to whom he had given the money, the time, the talents, the calling, His Holy Spirit, the understanding to be brought to Him that He might know how much everyone had gained. How much did each one grow? How much did each one serve? How much did each one help bring into the kingdom of God by helping Him do His part in the kingdom of God, the work of God today? And Christ is watching you. He is. He's watching me. I can still waste time, and I do. But I'd better give my time and my energy the best I can, no matter how old I am. I ought to follow Mr. Armstrong, which I'm trying to do. And I don't do anything perfectly. But I know Mr. Armstrong said he'd rather die with his boots on. He'd rather wear out than rust out, you know. And I think most of us feel that way. That's what we better do. And make our life count for something while we're here. And prepare for the kingdom of God with our time, our energy, our talents, our money, everything we have, drive toward that goal. That's what Christ said. And the first came saying, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said, well done, good servant, because you were faithful in very little. Go off to heaven and roll around heaven all day with nothing to do. As you know, that's what I was taught in the Methodist church, and that's what most of you were taught in the various Protestant or Catholic churches. Well, you know, of course, Christ didn't say that. He says, have authority over ten cities. Government. The second came. Your masters earned five minas. He said, likewise, you also be over five cities. A responsibility of government. So the whole thing is about that, as we know, but we need to really think of it as a reality and wrap our minds around that more. Back in Revelation, if you turn there again to a couple of scriptures, there are many, I'll just read two, but Revelation chapter 2, verse 26. Christ is speaking directly. He said, He who overcomes and keeps my works, the works of Christ, doing Christ's work and His way of life, until the end, to Him I will give power over the nations." 
Not power over a harp to play a harp, (laughs) but power over the nations. And He shall rule them with a rod of iron. Yes, it's going to be really strict at first. Why would we want to crush people and rule them with a rod of iron? Well, if you really read about the Idiomenes and the Magavis and how they've crushed people under them and how when Christ comes back they're going to fight Him with vast armies, of course He has to crush them. And we will have to rule them, you know, strongly. And yet the little ones that are hurting and crying and asking for help, we'd better learn to be very gentle to them and help them and bless them and encourage them and be warm to them and say, it's okay, it's okay. Because some of them will be shaking as the people started shaking in the concentration camps of Hitler when they heard the German jackboots coming down the hall. They didn't know if they were going to be beaten with, with, with clubs or bayonets or, or hung out on a stake and tortured. They didn't know that. They would literally start shaking. You read about that. I don't need to describe it in detail, but I don't think a lot of you fully get it. I've been there and been to those concentration camps now, two or three of them, and read about it so much. Those things happen in my lifetime. I was attending junior high school dances on the roof garden of the Joplin, uh, Missouri, 4th and Main, and having a good time while these kids my age were over there suffering and being beaten and raped and humiliated in Hitler's Nazi Germany. They were suffering, and we were not suffering over here. But you come to realize it can happen right while we're here in this nation, and it's going to come over here the next time, though. So we've got to get real about this and understand it is going to come here next time, and we want to get ready so we will be protected from these things that are going to come and be ready for what Christ has called us to. He has not called us just to float around heaven. He has called us to be part of a real government to bring peace and encouragement and health and well-being and prosperity to this earth in a way it has never had. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the potter's vessel shall be broken in pieces, as I also received from my Father. Yes, Christ is going to rule with a rod of iron, but we also are to do that. That's what it's saying. Who is going to do that? He who overcomes. Are you an overcomer or are you a sitter in church? You come and sit in church. I don't want to describe all the different ones. I could give a whole list of names, and I'm sure Mr. Aparty could, of all these people we used to see sit in the church in Pasadena back in the Shakespeare Club and later on in the gymnasium. And then we moved to the house of God. They sat there and sat there and sat there. And sometimes I'd say to my wife, Margie, when I saw certain ones, I'd say, well, I don't think these people ever converted. And so it's not my job to judge them, but they're just so carnal. I hope they can wake up. Well, some of them did wake up and some of them didn't. But I figured it out. And I knew by the fruits, you could just see they were carnal. They were drinking too much. They were cussing. Some were smoking here and there a little bit. Some of them were slapping their wives and cursing their wives, beating their children, oppressing others around the office there, putting them down, humiliating them, taking advantage of them right in the, in the, in the work there. And Mr. Armstrong didn't always realize it because he was older and he was off in his office in the sky and his Gulf Stream and everyone was afraid to go to him. Well, I wasn't. I went a few times, but at any rate, it didn't always work out. And it was a big work. And we couldn't make everyone become perfect at that time. God allowed those things to happen. I don't mean the work was filled with that, but they had a lot of human nature there. And I know and know that I know I was in a key position to know about it, perhaps as much as anyone else, because I was the head of the visiting program 
at Pasadena for a long time, as well as being head of the ministry. And these things would come to me personally. We had human nature. We have human nature here. Nobody's perfect in our office here. And nobody's perfect in our headquarters church here, including me. But we had better get real, each one of us, and think, I have got to be ready to rule under Jesus Christ the way He wants me to. That's why I'm being called now. He could have called you later, but He called you now to help get this work out, and secondly, to prepare to be those kings and priests. Back in Revelation 5, Revelation chapter 5 now, it talks about the prayers of the saints and how they sang a new song. In verse 9, you're worthy to take the scroll and open the seals, for you were slain, talking about Christ, and have redeemed us to God. Boy, we've had to be redeemed because we're all sinners. You've, been re you've redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation that have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign. We're going to rule on this earth. My topic is to prepare to rule. We're going to talk about that today. That's why we're here. That's one reason we're called, to help get out this work now and then to prepare to be those kings and priests. And as we've explained again and again, but some of you are newer, we're not called just to be kings, brethren. We're called to be priests. We're called to teach. Priests were teachers. And we've got to rule the people, lead the people, but teach the people. They're going to have to be taught a whole different way of life. They really are, and they don't understand. They're not being taught about that way of life in the Protestant or Catholic churches. I read the story a number of times about the, the Lutherans in Germany and how this one Lutheran uh, uh, family later became very upset with themselves when they realized what, how awful it was in the concentration camps just about 20 or 30 miles outside of town and how the railroad track carrying the boxcars with screaming Jews and Poles and Czechs and others would come slowly right by their church. And the people were crying out, and they could hear it, especially in the summertime when the windows were closed. And this guy asked them, well, what did you do? They said, we sang louder. We sang louder so we wouldn't have to hear these people crying out from the boxcars headed to the concentration camps to be tortured and butchered and slaughtered. So this is a strange world. And those Protestant churches, they don't get it. My Methodist minister, Dr. Ridpath, he just didn't get it. He virtually never talked about prophecy. He never had a sermon that I can remember one time on the book of Revelation. Went through all these scriptures that we're talking about, even in the Old Testament, about prophecy. One-fourth of the Bible is prophecy. Most of those preachers don't talk about it at all, or if they do talk about it, they have a total misunderstanding because they miss the basic key to understanding 90% of end-time prophecy. It's not a minor thing, it's a huge thing. That is the identity of the modern so-called lost ten tribes of Israel. And I want all you black brethren and Mexicans and Orientals around the world to hear me. It's not that Israel's better. It Israel was called to do a particular job. And the main thing we preach, and when we preach that message, is not that we're better, but that God is going to punish the Anglo-Saxon Celtic peoples of lost ten tribes because we have failed and we're going to be the recipients of the Great Tribulation. There were certain strengths that ancient Joseph had and saving up money and saving up uh, uh, grain and so on, and Israel has tended to be that way. 
but individually we have just as many sins of adultery and lust and, and sodomy and all that as the other people's. We have certain strengths, and that's one, one reason God gave the descendants of Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh the great national blessings. And we have shared things with the rest of the world, but we haven't taught them the right way of life as we should have done at all, and God knows that. So we need to understand we're going to be kings and priests what, for a couple of years, and then we'll get over it real quick? Think about it, brethren. No, probably for the next 1,100 years, for the 1,000 years of the millennium, and we're not dogmatic about it being a 100-year period afterward, but apparently that is the length of time, for 1,100 years. And then what? Of the increase of His kingdom, there is no end it says back in Daniel 9, it's going to keep growing. Maybe we'll have colonies. They want to have all these uh, scientists want to have colonies on Mars. They're not going to have colonies on Mars. They admit it's going to be 20 or 50 years before they could do that humanly. But we may have colonies on Mars and, and Saturn and all the other planets, but it will be God's kingdom, God's colonies, and He'll modify the, the uh, weather or make different types of beings that could take, take that climate they have, which human beings can't take now. And so on. The whole universe is out there. More stars than there are people. And the scientists acknowledge that. What are they out there for? We don't know. But we know it's awesome what God has in mind. For the next 1,100 years, that's going to be our job. Is that real to you? To you personally? Do you think about it? I'm being prepared right now to be a king or a priest over a city or a village or a whole nation or whatever, later on, depending on how much I overcome, how much I give of myself, my time, my talents, my resources, my attitude, everything I have, give it to God, and to whom, unto whom much is given, much is required. Are we really meditating on this and preparing? Remember the old saying that I refer to from time to time that has been a very, frankly, it's, the Bible says it too, but just the way it's put here is remarkable to me. I read it years ago. And I've mentioned in several sermons, the thoughts which dominate your mind are what you truly value. The thoughts which dominate your mind are what you truly value. I know that one of our leading ministers years ago was just kidding, but he says, what does the average American teenage boy think about all the time, all day long? Girls and sports and travel and girls, and TV, and girls, and you get the picture. Every other one was girls. And, of course, sometimes it was good ideas about girls. Otherwise, it was sometimes just lust, too, and vanity, and so on. That's the human carnal mind we have. And we're that way without realizing it in God's church. Some of us think about just our family or women think about their home and making it perfect like Martha. Martha, you're troubled about many things, Jesus said. Mary has chosen the important part. That is to just give your life to God and put that first above everything else. Certainly you need to be a reasonable housekeeper and everything else, but not let that take up all your time. And so many businessmen in the church who just want to make more money or other young men want to be successful in their own way, whatever it is. And their mind's on those things. And always thinking about what's the great big TV program tonight or what's the latest movie out or what's this or what's that. That is not what is important. You won't be here in the flesh very much longer. 
this world is coming to an end and you will either be dust under the ashes under the soles of the feet of the righteous or you will be in the kingdom of God. Glorified spirit beings helping Christ rule this earth. And you want to get real about that. Get excited about it. Say, wow, I want to do what God wants me to do. I've been given life and breath for a purpose. Not just to attend church and sit in the seat in church and then say, well, I don't like this guy over here because he's not perfect. Well, of course he's not perfect. No one in God's church has ever, ever been perfect except Jesus Christ Himself. Peter and, and, and uh, Paul have that set to, remember, and I'm sure they had many others, frankly, as far as that's concerned. And it mentions the one where Peter would not eat with the Gentiles and Paul corrected him to his face. And Paul and Barnabas got into it. Barnabas, I want to take my nephew. And Paul said, no, you're not. He left us and we were deserted and he was supposed to be with us. So they, they split up and they never worked together again, so far as we know. Human nature. What happened to Mrs. Peter? What happened to Mrs. James and John and Mrs. Bartholomew? You don't hear a word about them. What about all their kids? Were they all childless? I don't think so. I think they had problems in their families because they were human. And Jesus Christ had said in Matthew 10 that in the family there will be two against three and three against two. That's what he said. Go back and read it. And you go back and read the stories of the prophets in the Old Testament and how some of Abraham's sons turned aside and Isaac's and Jacob's and so on and what happened to them and how David's sons turned aside and Samuel's sons turned aside. Not all of them, but human nature is everywhere. And you have to really understand that. So God doesn't give us all the details of everybody's family problems. That wouldn't have been very enlightening if we heard about Peter's son who went off and got drunk or, or uh, you know, uh, Bartholomew's son who went off and got some girl pregnant over here somewhere or whatever it was. They had things like that. God doesn't dwell on that. These men had to be separated from their families, sometimes for months at a time on these trips. And when you understand human nature and have lived for a while, as I have, you realize there's human nature there. And they had problems. But God tells us we're not to, you know, sometimes in the work in Pasadena, we got on each other's nerves because we knew everybody, you know, around the office every day and their human problems. The same thing here. The people in the office know each other's human problems. But those of you who come in just once a week, why, you have everybody's Sabbath smile and everyone's wonderful, but you don't see them all week long. <laughs> around here in the office, we're all running around with horns, right? <laughs> no, we don't have horns in a pitchfork, but we have human nature. And there's always been that. But you've got to get your eyes on the big picture. Why has God called you now and want to go all out? I mean all out for that purpose with all your being. And think about it. Meditate about it. Pray about it. Have your mind on that. The thoughts which dominate your mind. You people here. Your mind are what you truly value. You think about girls and then sports and then fast cars and then sports girls or whatever. Well, if you're a young man, maybe you do. Some of you old men, maybe you're thinking about something else. <laughs> but at any rate, we better get our mind in the right place. Matthew chapter 6. Turn there with me, brethren, at this point. Matthew chapter 6. And I want to begin reading in verse uh, 30 here in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus talks about the needs of the flesh. And He said, Now if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? You've got to have faith that if you really seek first God's kingdom 
Obviously, he tells you to do what? Six days shall you work and do all your labor. So you do have your part to do. But if you do that, you don't just have to focus on that all the time. Your big focus, again, even in that, is the kingdom of God. Therefore, verse 31, do not worry. So you have your mind all focused on it all the time and agonizing around about it, saying, what shall we eat, drink, or wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows you have need of these things. But seek first Christ's command. Way above everything else, frankly, as you look at the whole Bible. Seek first the kingdom of God or the government of God. And what does that mean? Praying daily, thy kingdom come. Praying daily, Father, send Jesus. Guide these world events and everything. And praying daily, please help me do better. Don't say, God, punish this other guy because he's not perfect. No, he's not. Neither you. Help me do better. Help me reflect Jesus Christ more each day. Help me, me, each of you, to grow in grace and in knowledge under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so I can reflect Christ, have Christ's mind, Christ's wisdom, Christ's character, Christ's fairness and objectivity, and therefore rule over a city or rule over a nation under Jesus Christ. I know I'll need His guidance, but so I can have those basic things, you see. And we need to pray that way and prepare for the kingdom of God. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. What is His righteousness? Well, again, Psalm 119, verse 172, All thy commandments are righteousness. Christ's character is reflected in the commandments. We know that. And so we've got to prepare for the kingdom of God. And brethren, think about this. We, frankly, should want to serve, to help, to encourage, to have empathy with, and compassion for those really billions... And I'm not exaggerating, billions of human beings out there who don't know God, and many of them right now are slowly starving to death, or right now dying of AIDS, or right now being beaten or tortured or raped or humiliated or in torture camps and prisons, or whatever, all over this earth right now, not some other time, right now as we sit here today, that's happening around the world. Or else, if they're not suffering that badly... Many of them are not suffering that badly. They're suffering in emptiness. They're suffering a great emptiness. And they have lust and vanity. And they say, I don't know what's going on. And they're all frustrated. And maybe last night they were crying themselves to sleep with their, their husband or their wife because they were fighting and fighting because they don't love each other. And they don't know God and they don't have His help. And they're about to break up or whatever. All over this world people are doing that. You know that, but the fruits, then they get divorced. They don't get divorced because someone sneezed in the other mate's face accidentally, and the next day they got divorced. They have these things for weeks and months and years sometimes, building up an emptiness. They don't have God. They don't know why they're here. They don't know how to have a happy marriage. They don't know how to give a happy marriage. They want to just get a happy marriage. Get, get, get. And they don't understand. So they're miserable. Inside, they're empty. And we've got to realize that they need our help. And we want to help them. We want to encourage them. We want to serve these people, millions of them, who are suffering. And they're suffering in all kinds of ways all over the world. Being held down and repressed in China and Tibet and other parts of the world, in the Middle East and Africa under these dictators. But even in wealthy areas, some of them are suffering because they're hooked on drugs. 
They're hooked on liquor. They're hooked on this or hooked on that and they don't know what to do about it. They're cut off from God and they need God and they need God's help. And we are and will be members of the family of God at that time and we will really genuinely be able to help them and say, here is the way, walk you in it. I love you. You're in trouble. I really want to help you. And finally, the world, people in the world, as they hear the voice behind them saying, this is the way, walk you in it. As I've said before, some of them will begin to say here and there around the world, as they hear that voice or see these type of individuals that look a little different or act, they'll say it's one of them. <laughs> they realize one of them, <laughs> members of the God family right there, guiding them, teaching them. And we will be there. We will be part of that. So we want to really think about that. Mr. Crockett gave very fine points last time on wisdom. And we've got to develop wisdom to be part of the government of God and to be able to rule over these cities in the time to come. We want to cultivate that. Do this. And visualize, brethren. Think through the specifics of how to rule. Visualize that and think it through because the Bible gives us the basics of all of this. The Bible is, as you know, the mind of God in print. The mind of God. It's the way God thinks. And many people don't understand that or believe that. But if you don't yet understand that, please prove that to yourself. This book is the revelation of the mind of God, even down to very tiny things. As I've said, you know, the doctors used to make fun of breastfeeding for a while. And now they're all saying, oh, that's so important. They used to make fun of male circumcision of little babies. Now they're realizing how important that is. Those are small things, you say. Of course they are. The big things are more obvious. Thou shalt not kill and thou shalt not commit. But the little things, they turn out to be the mind of God. The little things even. Whatever God says in this book, if you rightly understand it, not try to put some weird twist on it, I don't mean that, but in connection with the other scriptures and interpreted and magnified by Jesus Christ, it is the mind of God. Back in Proverbs 29, verse 18, Proverbs 29, verse 18, Solomon said in the King James Version, where there is no vision, the people perish, but happy is he who keeps the law. Brethren, we need vision. And I want to give you more of that vision today, to think about the kingdom of God, the coming government of God on this earth. It says three times near the end of the book of Revelation, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. I'm coming. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Yes, we should pray that every day. Please come quickly. We need to help these people. And this world cries out for God. In Romans 8, it talks about the whole creation cries out for the revelation of the sons of God. And the, the people on earth cry out. That is, their, their suffering does. They don't cry out personally. They don't understand but their suffering cries out for it. But the whole creation, what's crying out? Well, all these beautiful trees that used to be up, as some of us remember, on the way to Big Bear and Lake Arrowhead, they're dying up there because the L.A. smog has pushed inland and tens of thousands of the trees are dying. And many other plants all over the world are dying. And the oceans are being polluted. And the fish and all kinds of species of fish and plants and birds are dying and dying and dying. They're crying out for a new government, and for us to help them. Because only it only can be done in that way. And we need to think about that as a very great reality, not something sentimental. And visualize how we need to be there and straighten out our nation, our kingdom, our city or village, 
or whatever responsibility we have, learning God's principles deeply now so we can be there and have that basic mind and then develop the character so God knows we're worthy of being there. We aren't going to play some trick and just leave or be a, 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 you know, a Lucifer and turn on him and rebel, show him we're loyal. But then at that point, he can use the training we've had. He can use the mind and the basic understanding we've developed and greatly enlarge that. Of course, he'll have to greatly enlarge whatever I understand. I don't know it all yet. He'll have to greatly enlarge that and guide us through His Spirit so we properly administer, properly administer our city, our little village, whatever it is, under Christ's direction because He will be here in person and He will help us administer it. And perhaps if we're helping administer a city or a village in Israel, then Christ will be directing it overall. But Christ may not directly deal with us. Maybe King David will because he's over, as you know, all 12 tribes of Israel, all the 12 nations of Israel. And maybe David will delegate it and I will be under Bartholomew or you will be under Doubting Thomas. You'll say, well, I don't want to listen to Doubting Thomas. Well, he isn't Doubting Thomas now. <laughs> he'll come up He'll come up with the resurrection because he will have made it. Everything indicates that when you read Jesus' statements. So he won't be Doubting Thomas and you might be under him. But Christ through King David through Thomas and Bartholomew and all these others will be administering the government and you and I can have their guidance and their teaching as spirit beings and know how to do it. Why is David going to be put over all Israel? Is this because he had a good attitude or because he killed Goliath or something? No, because he was in that job, that very job, running Israel for 40 solid years. He made the decisions. He helped guide the judges. He was the Supreme Court, in a sense. The biggest matters they brought to him, and he had other advisors around him because he and Solomon told us, of course, in multitude of counsel there was wisdom. David made some terrible mistakes along the way, but overall he was a very righteous man. And God says later, as I've told you so many times, don't ever forget it, only, only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite did David turn aside directly from anything God told him? Only Uriah and Bathsheba in that situation, kind of a lost weekend type or a lost six months, whatever it was. Then he deeply repented, got back on the track, and never ever did anything major like that again in his entire life. He did not. And God forgave that. And it was a different age. It was more easy then because of the different circumstances. As you know, all the kings around, they could take whatever woman they wanted. It didn't make any difference. I'll just grab this woman or that. And David had that temptation in an age when it seemed more normal, but it was not normal or right. And he knew it. When Nathan came to him, he could have said, off with your head. And God sometimes permitted the prophets to have their head chopped off by the wicked kings of Judah or Israel. But David didn't say, off with your head. Tears came to his eyes. As I dealt with a man who had this type of thing, and tears came to his eyes, and he would shake and cry. And David probably was shaking and crying and saying, I'm sorry, it's awful, I can't believe myself, but I did do that. And then he tried to change, and with God's help, he did change. And never did it again in his case. So let's visualize how we're going to be there and do these things under Christ's direction and study the mind of God so we can do it the right way. Turn back to Exodus now to get a little overview. And again, many of you us have given you this, and I have many times, but I want to uh, one more time here in this uh, particular uh, setting, in this particular way, 
turn back to Exodus chapter 18. Exodus 18, you remember the story about how Moses was judging Israel and God guided his father-in-law to help him to know how to do it. In perhaps 10 or 15 years or 20, some of us may be judging, ruling, guiding, leading, teaching a whole city or a village. And we will have to learn how to do it. Verse 13, It came to pass on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people. So you remember the story. They sat by Moses from morning to evening. Great big lines trying to get the right judgment. And Moses' father-in-law says, This is not good. What are you doing? And Jesus, or Moses said, verse 16, When they have a difficulty, they come to me, and I judge between one and another, and I make them known the statutes. Notice that, not just the Ten Commandments. The statutes are a letter of the law explanation of how to administer the commandments in a civil setting. So Moses' father-in-law said, The thing you do is not good. You'll wear yourselves out. The people get tired standing in line, and you're going to be up all day, and you'll have a heart attack over whatever he said. Listen, he said, and I'll give you counsel. And he gave him good counsel, and God puts it in his word, indicating it was good. You shall teach them the statutes. That's what we're to do, to teach the whole world as best we're able, our part of the world, God's laws and commandments and statutes as they're magnified. And show them the way, a whole way of life in which they should walk and the work they must do. Moreover, you shall select. He does say have the people vote. God's Bible does not have one single solitary instance from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation where the people ever voted for anything. It's not there. If you know where it is, you show me. In fact, I'll give you $1,000 if you show me out of my personal money. I'll do it because it's not there. <laughs> if I thought it were there, I wouldn't offer that. But it's not there. There's not one time where the Bible ever showed people voting, but some of these Church of God groups, they vote for this, and they're so embarrassed about using the word voting because Mr. Armstrong condemned it over and over, so they call it balloting, balloting. <laughs> okay, same thing. <laughs> but you shall select or appoint who able men in this life, men are to be the leaders of the tribes and of the families, but in the kingdom of God, remember, the women are going to be spirit beings and we're all going to have responsibility. Able men, such as fear God. That's the first attribute. You've got to have the awe of God. We don't, well, I'll water this down or I'll change that. No, the fear of God. Hating covetousness, that's next. Why? Because so many rulers today want to get a payoff. You know, they get extra taxes or bribes from other people and take advantage of their nation, like Idi Amin and these other various rulers. I won't try to recite all of them, but so many of the papers have brought out how they put their big, so many hundred million or billion dollars in a Swiss bank account, and when they're kicked out, they run over in Europe and live lavishly after they've literally robbed the people for years. They hate covetousness and place such men over them to be rulers of thousands, Rulers of hundreds, of fifties, and tens. So you have different groups under them. And let them judge the people at all times. Then it shall be that every great matter, just like they bring the hardest cases to the United States Supreme Court, you see, they would break it to Moses, who no doubt had a number of leading men sitting around him for advice. And they shall bring to you these things, but every small matter they will judge. 
So it will be easier for you and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this and God so commands you, which God did lead Moses to do this, as we see, then you'll be able to endure. And then Moses did that. That's the pattern. Fear men, able men, capable men who fear God and hate covetousness, who are trying to serve. And this is one of the big things, brethren. Again, if you're going to be in God's kingdom and be a ruler, I know in our early ministry even we had young men ordained quite often that had just come from a church family or whatever to college. And then as they came in, it looked like the thing to do was to be a minister. You know, if you go to West Point, well, then what are you supposed to be? You become a second lieutenant upon graduation. And they had that attitude. And that got a lot of them in trouble. I could name some of their names, but I will not. But they turned aside. Many of them, dozens of them I know about. And they just turned aside because it was just grade 13. You get to be, you know, you graduate, you get to be a preacher, and you go out, have Bible, will preach, and you get to get your, on, on the graduation weekend, you would go into CAD and get your lease car, and your expense account and some instruction and where you're going. You're going to be an assistant in Minneapolis or Chicago or wherever. And you pick up your keys to your lease car. Sabbath after, Friday afternoon you graduate. Uh, Sabbath morning the final brunch and you say uh, goodbye or whatever. And then uh, Sabbath final sermon. And then Sunday, uh, sometimes even Saturday night and all day Sunday, five or ten weddings, one after the other, all over the campus. You get married, and right after the wedding, you take off across and stop by Phoenix on the way, and pretty soon you're back in Chicago or St. Louis, and you're an associate or assistant minister, and there you are. And what do you do? Well, you didn't know very much, and many of you grew up in the church, and so it just became natural to sort of think that's grade 13. And they didn't fully understand the whole way of God and humility. They thought that's what it means to be important in Ambassador College. But brethren, as we've learned by suffering, by suffering... Now, I didn't go through that. I've had many other mistakes, but when I came, there was no example of anything like that. I didn't think that. I didn't even know there was a church. I mean that before God. All I knew was a broadcast in college. And the first Sabbath I was there, Uncle Paul told me out in his home, I was staying with him the first few weeks before Mayfair opened up. And he said, well, Rod, he says, uh, now Mr. Armstrong is God's servant. He went through a lot of stuff. And he said, we're, we're going to church today. I said, well, it's Saturday. He said, well, I know. But he said, you'll come to realize this is the right day. <laughs> and I, oh, well, okay. So I went to church with Uncle Paul and Matt Ethel and learned about the Sabbath. I'd never heard of it before. I didn't know about the church. I came to college not for that, but to learn the truth and then go back home to the university. University of Missouri on my track scholarship and study business administration. That was my plan. Halfway through the year, my freshman year, Betty Bates got me by the water cooler. She was the only girl in college, and she was the friend to all of us. And she said, Rod, are you coming back uh, next year? I said, I, I'm pretty sure I am. By then I thought I was, but I wasn't dogmatic. By the end of the year, I knew I was, <laughs> but it took time. I didn't know. And some of us had to gradually realize we wanted to help Mr. Armstrong and uh, not necessarily be a preacher. I won't go through the whole story. But some of these younger men got into that, and they got to acting very cocky and important. I'm the new second lieutenant, and I'm in charge here, and I'm up here, and you're down there, and had this superior attitude. Well, all of us today who are ministers or department heads or whatever we are in God's work, and all of us had better realize we're here to serve those under us. 
And brethren, in the kingdom of God, that's what our attitude has got to be or we won't be there in some big position. Our whole attitude should be, I want to help you. You're a human being. You're made in God's image. And I have this opportunity, having been here a little bit longer or knowing a little bit more or whatever it is, to help you and serve you, encourage you, teach you, you know, yet not with a superior attitude. Maybe later on you'll be have a higher position in God's kingdom than I do. Did you know that I've trained five or six of my bosses? I did. They were in my class. Mr. Pardin, Mr. Pyle, and others may remember some of these guys. You know, they were in my freshman class and Epistles of Paul and other situations where I was their boss for a while. Some men such as Wayne Cole and Ron Dart, who became heads of the ministry, and, and even Ted Armstrong was in some of my classes. And uh, different ones like that that I worked under temporarily, Al Pertoon and Charles Hunting and uh, and so on, were in my classes. Later on, I got I, I kidded about it after it happened to her. I said, I'm getting to train my own bosses. I'd better be good to everybody. In another three years, they might be my boss. <laughs> and some of them were for a while. But anyway, you've got to have that attitude. That's one of the biggest things we've all got to learn. You know, I, you know, the biggest lies. They say, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. <laughs> Remember? <laughs> but in the kingdom of God, it better not be a lie. I'm from Christ's government. I'm here to serve you because you're a wonderful human being made in God's image and I want to help you. And if my help in, in consists, it, it has to do at times, if you're a minister, of maybe correcting them, saying, you know, you're wrong and repent and do better, yet in love for the right reason, Yet you're there to serve them. Your attitude is to serve them, not to act like you're above them and be just ready to catch them on some little thing and put them down, but to genuinely help them and give to them and serve them. That's so important, brethren, and so we've got to have that. And you need to visualize those things as you are made a member of the kingdom of God. So then we read right after Exodus 18 in this powerful uh, description in chapter 19 of Mount Sinai, shaking, literally shaking, and thunderings and lightnings. And then in chapter 20, God spoke all these words, I am the ever-living one. Who was this ever-living one? The one who became Jesus of Nazareth who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods don't put anything ahead of God, and you shall not make any idols. God cannot be put in a picture frame or anything else. God is massive, awesome, beyond any representation. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Be very careful how you use God's name. You know, so many of these charismatic churches, they say, Lord, Lord, and God all the time, and just throw it around in a cheap way. Don't do that. You better be sure you really mean it and understand what you're talking about. Remember the Sabbath day, the one command so many people want to forget. <laughs> God says, remember that one thing. That's the one thing the world always forgets. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. You don't make it holy. It's already holy. You keep it that way. God made it that way. Honor your father and mother. And you've got to teach that way of life in a few years, to really honor your father. That doesn't mean follow them if, you, if people in the kingdom come in from Hinduism or Buddhism, but you can honor them and, of course, pray that they will have their eyes open. And in tomorrow's world, they will. The veil will be stripped from all the eyes, and people can understand. And then he went on to say, you shall not murder. 
And uh, because, of course, that's one of the worst things you can do to take even the whole possibility of life. And you shall not uh, commit adultery. That's put next because that breaks and undermines the whole foundation of every decent society. And many men all through the world and even in God's church from time to time think lustful thoughts after other men's wives or other women that are not their wives. And that's the spirit of adultery. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not lie. If you can't trust a man's word, you can't trust him. He says, I'm sorry, I repent. You say, well, you've been lying so much, I don't know if you really mean it now. How can I know at this time? you fooled me so many times before. You shall not lie. You shall not covet. You're not constantly wanting more material things. And then the thunderings and lightnings caused the people to tremble as they saw the power of the God of Israel. And then in chapters 21, 22, and 23, you find some of the statutes of God showing the way of God the way of God in detail. And we need to understand that in some extent, to some extent. I want to turn to Deuteronomy 12 here because Deuteronomy gives it far more fully than it does there. Deuteronomy 12, verse 1, These are the statutes and judgments which you should be careful to observe in the land. He shows them then to utterly destroy all the pagan places. You say, well, that was back there. No, <laughs> brethren, think about it. When Christ comes, what's going to happen to St. Peter's? <laughs> Ooh, I think Christ will probably destroy that before we have to. But all that paganism and all those side altars and the saint this and saint that and all these altars and all this pagan stuff all over the world. Little old ladies in America bring back these idols of Buddha and they have in their house. They say, oh, is this interesting? No, it's not interesting because a pagan god should not be there. Destroy all these things that represent a false god. And then he tells them, of course, to keep the feast of uh, his feasts in the place he shall choose. And I won't go through those basic things, but he gets to some specific things. And, of course, he says, For there arise to you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams. And even if he, what he says comes to pass, you'd better not follow him if he's talking about another God. Because God does permit even false prophets to perform some miracles like Pharaoh's magicians did. And then he gets in chapter 14 to clean and unclean meats, a way of life of taking care of our bodies. And chapter 15, of course, is talking about the release of debts, a whole way of life, the seventh year of release, a time of release from debts, people going bankrupt. They're suddenly free again, free again from that debt. And God set a system that would really help people. And he says, forgive them. In verse 16, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all the works you put your hand to do, for the poor will never cease from the land. So help them, forgive them, try to help them every way you can. And chapter 16 talks about the feast of Passover and, and unleavened bread and so on. And in chapter 17, you begin to get more of these specific things. He says here, for instance, is very meaningful, I think. In chapter 17, verse 12, now, the man who acts presumptuously, you see, will not listen to the servant of God. You're going to be a king and a priest in a few years and will not heed the priest who ministers before the Lord or the judge that stands there. That man shall die. Now, we know that we're not supposed to other scriptures administer the death penalty under the New Testament, the New Covenant, but it shows God's attitude. That is very serious. Once you know that someone is a true minister or servant of God, 
you are in terrible trouble if you try to undermine or change that or rebel against it. Yet people do that all the time in the church today. All the people shall hear and fear and no longer act presumptuously. And then when you come to the land and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations. Israel wanted a king. You shall surely set a king whom God chooses. And they should pray to God about it. One from among your brethren. They were not to have someone of another country or another ethnic group. One of your brethren. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And that was a command from God Almighty. You think about that. But he shall not multiply horses for himself. They weren't to constantly build great armaments all the time, but learn to trust in God. Neither shall he multiply wives, because in the Old Testament he allowed them to have a few wives, but if they multiplied wives like Solomon did, and you get 12 or 20 or 50 or something, then your mind is all on that all the time, and that's totally wrong. Of course, we're not to multiply wives even beyond one wife in the New Covenant. We understand that. But he told them specific things. Verse 18, When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this book of the law, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the eternal his God, and be careful to observe all the words of this law and his statutes. Even the king was to be humble and study the law of God. David said, as you know, in Psalm 119, verse 165, Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. And you've got to really fear God and meditate on God's law. Think about God's law. Love God's law and meditate on it and say, how does this and that and some other point apply to me and apply to us today as Jesus magnified the commandments and so on. And then uh, so many other fine things all the way through. But I just wanted to give a few I better not go on here because I could go on till 5 o'clock this afternoon. But you can read this. Deuteronomy 12 through 28 gives you the statutes of God and the judgments more fully than any other one place in the Bible. If you're taking notes, write it down. Deuteronomy 12, these are the statutes and judgments. And read them, pray about them, think about them. They are the human letter of the law basis of how we're going to rule in Christ's kingdom. Certainly is magnified by the New Testament. We understand that. Another very, very important point that we should mention quite often, and I think we do from time to time, but it's back in Second Samuel. Second Samuel, brethren, and we turn to chapter 23. Second Samuel, the last words of David, thus says the David the son of Jesse, verse 1, 2 Samuel 23, Thus says the man, God raised on high the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Eternal spoke by me, and His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel, the rock of Israel, spoke. He's emphasizing this. This is very important. He who rules over men must be just ruling in the fear of God. That's so important, so basic. Every now and then someone comes to me with an accusation about this one or that or someone else in the ministry or here or whatever. I've got to weigh it. I've got to pray about it. I've got to get multitude of counsel about it. It takes time. You can't just decide all of a sudden and then maybe take action after thought and prayer, meditation, perhaps even fasting and ask God to guide us the right way. But if we do that, God will guide us. But a man has got to have that attitude and none of us have it perfectly, but we'd better try. 
or we won't be there. We will not be ruling in Christ's kingdom in tomorrow's world to have that attitude of the, uh, of the of humility and the fear of God. And as Mr. Crockett brought up from the Proverbs the other day, and as I often tell you, four or five times during the book of Proverbs, what does he say? In multitude of counsel there is wisdom. Be humble, cry out to God, but in multitude of counsel there is wisdom. And brethren, that's so important to try to ask for those things and get multitude of counsel and listen to it. That doesn't mean you always follow it. There will be times that, you know, Mr. Armstrong may have overridden counsel in a right way, or I have. I don't think I've ever overridden any big objection from the council of elders. But there might be some time when God would directly reveal something, but that's not very likely. But you've got to listen and think about it, pray about it, and take it very, very seriously. Back in Genesis chapter 32, some principles of wisdom. Genesis chapter 32, Jacob was coming back having fled and got a wife and fled his brother Esau after he took advantage of him. And he sent messengers ahead. And in Genesis 32 verse 6, the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau and also he's coming to meet you with 400 men. Ooh, how nice. (laughs) He's going to wipe you off the face of the earth. And you hear then how David or Jacob cries out to God, I'm not worthy of the least of all the mercies you've shown to your truth and which you've shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff. That's all I had, a walking staff. And now I've become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from my brother. He's going to come and attack me and the mother with the children. He begged God for help. But what did he do? God gives us certain principles of wisdom. So he lodged there that night, and then he got a present for Esau. And he tried to ameliorate his wrath by giving a present. And he sent these presents ahead and sent them ahead of him. And pass over before me, verse 16, and put some distance between these droves of animals. And when my brother Esau asks you and says, What are these? You say, These are a present from your servant Jacob. And another group was to come. And hear the same word. Another group was to come. And there were, of course, reasons for that. As we find David put one family up there and another family and another family. And he and his, his uh, favorite wife, Rachel, came last of all. You've got to use wisdom. You've got to think things through carefully and things like that. And another thing it tells you, shows you about something that's even a principle of investing. What's the number one word, number one, uh, well, principle, just in one word, if you're going to invest your money? If you have very much money, most of you don't have a lot, but if you have enough to have, it, have this principle, you better do it. One word. Every, almost every divisor tells you that too. Diversify. Don't put all your money in one basket. Diversify. Have some over here and some over there. This bank could go down. This commodity could go down. This could change. This Diversify. David was, in a sense, diversifying. He didn't put all his money in one basket, or or, uh, Jacob here. He had this one and this one and this one. If they kill one group, his other groups could flee before they got there, if you see what I mean. God gives you lots of examples. And that's all I'm doing. I can't begin to cover all the examples today, brethren, but there are many examples like that. Another example is back here, if you would read it, in uh, chapter 41, Genesis 41. And you read in verse uh, 34 here, 
Joseph then was put over the land, and uh, he said, let Pharaoh do this. He knew there's going to be a terrible famine lasting seven years. Do this. Appoint officers, and not voting, appoint officers to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land and gather this produce up, then reserve that food for the, of the land for seven years of famine and so on. So he told them in detail how to do it as you read through the story. God tells you many times, consider the ant who lays up for the winter. Take care of yourself, as I said in one of the latest co-worker letters I wrote. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Get a certain amount of savings. You know, protect yourself in the right way. Don't just say, I'm going to spend it all and I'm going to have this special TV and this bigger car and this bigger that and spend all. No, live a little below your means. Give the best you can to God's work. Yes, that's important, but take care and also save some. You don't need to save hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's not necessary, but save enough for a rainy day, depending on your need and your standard of living. And God tells you to lay up for hard times in these examples. You've got to learn wisdom. And then as you learn that wisdom, you can help others later in your kingdom, in your city, to learn to have wisdom about this and that and something else, whatever it is. In 1 Kings, turn back to 1 Kings if you would now at this point, uh, chapter 3, 1 Kings, chapter 3, and uh, I'm going to begin reading here in verse uh, 16. 1 Kings 3, it describes Solomon. And you know the story, so I'll just paraphrase it. These two women came to wise King Solomon, and they one of them was a harlot, but they had a they had a uh, a baby. They were both harlots apparently, and they each had a baby, and were each claiming and the ba- one baby died, and each were claiming, well, the, the dead baby's this other woman's baby, uh, or or no, well, the live one's my baby. Excuse me. They were emphasizing that part more, and so as you know the story. They had, the king had them come forward in this courtroom, so to speak, and the king said, bring a sword. So they brought a sword, and the king said, verse 25, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. You might say, boy, that's horrible. But this was, of course, an absolute monarchy, and they executed people all the time, so they didn't think David was, or Solomon was, was bluffing, if you follow me. They knew he might literally do that. And this woman was horrified. And the woman whose child it really was, and she knew, she said, save my child. She loved that child. Save my child. And the other harlot was kind of hard. Go ahead and just chop him up. And Solomon knew right away which one. You have to test people sometimes. Test people. And I have done that in various ways to try to test them by giving them something or having them do something and see how they react. Test them and see if they're sincere in this or that situation. And God says, by their fruits you will know them. By the people's attitude and by the people's actions in various situations, you can't always trust them. Don't just trust what, don't listen just to what they say. Watch what they do. Watch what they do. There's a difference between the two in some people's lives, unfortunately. So you want to ask God for wisdom so you could be the right kind of ruler, the right kind of leader in tomorrow's world. And try to find out people's real motives. Ask God for perceptiveness and learn to think through these things. And ask God for wisdom. And try, brethren, to get all the facts about a situation. 
when you're making a judgment. Get all the facts and then take time to weigh it. What is the result of this or that decision tomorrow? But what is going to be the result of this situation 10 years from now or 100 years from now? Sometimes it will seem to be better for the people around there right then. If you tell the person this or if in your own life you do this or that, you'll look better in the short run. But what's going to be the result much, much later? For instance, if I or some of you had gone along with Worldwide, I would have been better off. They promised me trips and a raise in salary and blessings. Oh, just come along and follow these. It's really great. That would have been better in the short run. Better, quote, unquote. You know what I mean? It would look better on the surface. But what is better in the long run? To think, what should I really do? What would Christ do? Try to think what's better in the long run, not just what is convenient at the moment. And try to ask God for wisdom and learn to make right decisions. So test people for their real motives and ask God, of course, to guide you and give you wisdom and insight and vision to see the big picture of what the goal ought to really be and objectivity where you're not a respecter of persons and you're not just playing a little game. Objectivity, because that is so important in God's sight. The time is coming, brethren, when Israel is going to be brought back from a terrible time of slavery and humiliation, as you know, and this applies in principle to the Gentiles and to all people. But God talks first of all about Israel. And he says in verse 7 of Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 31, verse 7, Thus says the Eternal, will sing with gladness for Jacob, shout among the chief of the nations, proclaim and give praise and say, O Eternal, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country, Everything is viewed, you know, from the point of view of Palestine, of, of Jerusalem. So Europe is up north. And gather them from the ends of the earth, the lame, the blind, the woman with the child, a great throng. They'll come how? They've been in concentration camps. They've been suffering. They'll come back with weeping and supplications. I'll lead them and cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way in which they will not stumble. For I'm a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Ephraim was not the firstborn. Reuben was the firstborn. But God chose Ephraim for the birthright. Hear the word of the Eternal. Declare it in the isles and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him in keeping as a shepherd. Does his flock. God will watch over us and our people as he brings us back. For the Eternal has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of one that is stronger. Therefore they'll come and sing in the height of Zion. Tremendous joy that will never be taken away. Awesome joy, streaming to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and wine and oil, young of the flock and herd, all kinds of stakes and good things. They shall sorrow no more at all. That is the kingdom that we're preparing for. That is what is going to happen. Our attitude should be to help these people, to serve these people as they come back crying. They've been hurt. They've been abused. And we will have to teach them, to love them, to encourage them, to have compassion for them. Not say, well, you've got long hair. You've got this or that. I'm going to get you. No. I sometimes kid our young people around here. If young, some young couple are newly married and hugging or kissing their wife. I say, watch. Think about the ambassador rules, you know. <laughs> of course, I'm kidding. They ought to hug their wife. But, you know, these people won't know anything. They'll need help. They don't need military stuff. They need love. 
They need mercy. They need compassion. And we've got to give that compassion and love and help to them and teach them then in love and patience the way that they should go because that way is the right way. And we as the kings and priests and God's coming government can help them in a way no one else can help them because we will be members of the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, Seek first above everything else the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That's what we really got to do. That's it.